revisit that quickly to get you oriented to where we are today. Earlier in chapter 19, we heard that there was a revival that had started when the believers began believing the gospel and then confessing their attachments to pagan, to pagan magic. So many of the believers, once they began to, began to reject the cultural idols of their day, they had come forward confessing and divulging their practices. Uh, the text says that a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's Acts 19, 18 through 20. And it is hard to move from the first century to the 21st century and come up with any equivalent dollar values. But there are some commentators that estimate that those 50,000 pieces of silver would be equal to $6 million in today's currency. Here's what we know for sure. Those believers wanted nothing to do with their old life, and they didn't care what it cost them. They just started throwing stuff out carelessly, right? So one guy's throwing stuff in the fire, and the other guy's saying, hey, we could sell that stuff on Amazon. And he's saying, I know, I don't care. I'm throwing it in. It's going in the fire. They're just getting rid of stuff. So we have that in the background here for our story today, the massive, public, expensive book burning that gained all this attention. And what we're going to do today is a continuation of that theme in the sense that it is a different story, but what we'll see again is that following Jesus has economic implications. And whether it's the first century or the 21st century, when you follow Jesus, it has an effect on your wallet. It did for them, it does for us. It did for them, it does for us. Let's keep that in mind as we get into today's scripture, starting in Acts 19, verse 23. We're going to work through these words. So it says, about that time, so shortly after the book burning, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And he gathered them together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. I'll stop there. At the beginning, our narrator Luke says there was no little disturbance concerning the way, which was an, is another way of saying big disturbance concerning the way. So what's the way, the way in capital letters that's causing the disturbance? The way refers to Christianity. This is an expression used multiple times in the book of Acts where Christians are referred to as belonging to the way, meaning the way of salvation or the way of true life or the way of life in relation to God. So that's important because Christianity is not called the concept or the idea. Rather, it's referred to as the way. In other words, it's not merely a religion of intellectual ideas. It's also a religion of journey and action. So these Christians, what they are professing, but also what they're doing is causing a disturbance. Now that's interesting because 
I'm not sure that's how people view Christians today, and I don't think that's how people view me. So many of you are probably familiar with the statistics that describe this region of the country, the Northeast or New England, as the least churched or most secular part of the country. So people who are not from this part of the country often will ask me or what this feels like, or people that say move here from school or relocate unexpectedly, they wonder what that feels like. I was in Whedon, Illinois last week for my brother's college graduation in early May. Whedon, Illinois has more churches per capita than anywhere in the United States. The phrase, a church on every corner, does not do justice. They have more churches than corners in Whedon. They, might, they have buildings named after C.S. Lewis and Billy Graham. And I talked to a woman there that she heard that I was a pastor north of Boston. And she looked at me, she said, Boston? The way that, like, you or I would say, Antarctica? Like, <laughs> and sometimes... Sure. So sometimes we feel that, that like aggressive sense of secularity, especially if you're used to a different part of the country. But honestly, more often what I encounter, especially when I meet people in town and they find out that I'm a pastor, is more what I would call like a cheerful indifference. It's indifferent and it's even vaguely sort of positive, like a good for you. Like people aren't sure what that means when I tell them about church or about being a pastor because they look at me a little puzzled because I don't appear to be a priest and they're not sure where to go next in the conversation because they're unclear on what that means that I do and then oftentimes people become apologetic and you can see in their mind they're mentally reviewing what they just said in the last 10 minutes but generally they're friendly if indifferent and it's because their assumption must be that whatever I do I must be a good person, and I must be trying to help other people, and who's not for that? And while they're not personally interested in Christianity, they are fairly sure that what I'm talking about is good and private and ultimately harmless. What we see in Acts is different. This Christianity is not private or personal or harmless. It's causing a disturbance, and that's because the gospel is not only good news for your afterlife, it has economic implications. It's not just good news for your soul, it is that, but it has economic implications. And specifically, in our story, the gospel is causing a disturbance among the local craftsmen. They're the ones who are feeling the economic implications. They are disturbed at what Paul has been teaching. We know that Paul was not afraid to talk about the local gods and say, yeah, those are not divine. Those things that you're making, they are not divine. Acts 17.29 says that Paul preached, being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In other words, Paul had a simple point. He told people, you are made in the image of God, and God is not made of silver or gold. He is not an image that people created on their own. Straightforward to the point. And you can imagine when people started to believe that and receive that truth, it changed the way they spent their money. 
the message of the gospel starts changing the way people spend their money, and some chaos ensues. We've already seen that it makes people get rid of stuff that's valuable because when they burn their magic books. Now we see that the believers aren't buying these silver shrines. So let's keep going and we'll see this. So a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. In other words, this is a Luke expression. He brought a lot of business to the craftsmen. So he's a man with a factory that produces silver shrines. He gathers all the members of what we would call the union or the, uh, the trade federation or the employees federation to organize what seems to be some type of protest. And as we're going to see, he has a very good sense of what would connect with these tradesmen. He knows how to appeal to them. He gathers everyone together, and he says, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. He's a good speaker, and he gets right to the point. He gets his big idea right out in front. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. This business is how we make our money, and that has to continue. We are making money off this trade, off the making and selling of silver gods. And here's the problem. Paul's preaching is leading to action. It's leading to actual repentance and change of life. And now people are living differently. They're spending their money differently. If you follow Jesus, that means by extension, you are not worshiping the Greek pantheon of gods. And if you aren't worshiping the Greek pantheon of gods, you probably are not buying their silver shrines. So I think you can see Paul is not making abstract points. He's not giving people food for thought. He's preaching prophetic truth, and it's changing how people live. And this inevitably makes an impression on the culture. And to be honest, Demetrius and his guys are in a tough place because Paul has a killer argument. Demetrius summarizes it by saying, and Paul has preached and persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. That is a tough truth to fight. Gods made with hands are not gods. But I want you to see this scene very clearly. The union of craftsmen is getting together, and the point is not to debate the veracity of Paul's statement. That's not really relevant for their purposes today. Demetrius is saying, we're here today because you know that from this business we have our wealth. And what's non-negotiable? That we retain our wealth. This is not about truth in the sense, this is not about a study into or an inquiry into whether what Paul is saying is actually cor correct. The first appeal is to their wallet. <clears throat> and what are the craftsmen up against? Paul's incredibly obvious and self-evident point that God's made with hands are not God's. So I want you to picture this scene because this is not a first isolated first century incident. This is not any different than tobacco executives sitting around a boardroom saying, men, from this business, we have our wealth. And the Surgeon General just revealed that our product causes cancer. This is not any different than casino builders getting together and looking at research that says gambling causes crime in a community. 
This is not any different from TV executives and NFL owners looking at concussion research and saying, men, from this business, we have our wealth. And they're looking the truth right in the face and saying to each other, men, from this business, we have our wealth. Demetrius is realizing a clear and present danger in Paul's words because it wouldn't be a real problem if Paul was just a philosopher and Christianity was just conceptual and this, these, this was stuff that people like to write books or talk about. That's not what's happening. In fact, Demetrius is saying he has already persuaded and turned away a great many people. Demetrius continues and he says, there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worships. So to break this down, there is danger to our wallets, and that's the starting place. But to just talk about our personal profit would be crass, and Demetrius is a skilled speaker. So he also points out there's danger to our way of life. There's danger that the temple might be counted as nothing. In other words, there's danger of loss of prestige to one of our iconic symbols. This would not be dissimilar to one of us saying that there's danger that the Sitgo sign might be knocked down or that someone is going to like knock over Bunker Hill. There's danger to the goddess Artemis. Artemis was the Greek name of the goddess Diana. So she's associated with things like fertility, hunting. They have a big citywide celebration in her name. There's danger to all of those things. But notice how Demetrius moves from personal self-interest, from the wealth of their trade. He starts with their wallets because that's what's closest to their hearts. But now he has moved to where we're talking about civic pride. He's talking about the temple, the goddess, our way of life. And actually, suddenly, their cause has become virtuous, Right? Now they're on the side of the Ephesian way and the historic goddess and one of the most iconic symbols of their community. Suddenly, this argument is no longer couched in selfish, vulgar economic terms. Suddenly, these craftsmen are freedom fighters trying to protect the Ephesian way of life. And this happens all the time. The respectability of sin in the first century or the 21st century is big business. And if you don't believe it, think about how many of our vices today, whether it's alcohol, tobacco, guns, or gambling, all have a forced relationship with civic values. They all have their own PR people. So, like, why is beer always promoted as being American? Why do cigarette advertisements always have mountains in the background? Why is the right to own a bazooka always associated with freedom? And why do hardcore pornographers wax eloquently about freedom of speech? It's because the respectability of sin is very big business. I'm not, don't hear me, I'm not getting into arguments of moderation with you. That's not where I'm going. But this happens all the time. The April 2016 issue of The Atlantic has an article entitled The Art of Marketing Marijuana, subtitle, how to make pot seem as all-American as an ice-cold beer. In other words, how do, we move this, how do we move marijuana out of stoner culture and make it seem middle-class and wholesome? Demetrius is beginning the PR campaign. He's presenting the danger 
to this business that is posed by these followers of the way. And his words incite a riot. The text tells us, when people heard this, they were enraged. And they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. When Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him go. The short version of this story is that hysteria ensues at Demetrius' speech. People get enraged. There's confusion. There's an angry mob. The disciples have to protect Paul just to keep him out of trouble because his life's in danger. Luke tells us that most of these screaming people didn't even know why they had come together. They gathered in that theater because it was the biggest place for people to get together in. That theater in Ephesus has been excavated. It's estimated that 25,000 people could have fit in there. So this is where a big crowd would come together to protest. As it turns out, the actual meeting was disorderly. It had no distinct purpose. Demetrius was good at rabble-rousing, but he didn't necessarily have a plan of action when all these people got together. And after hours of shouting, a man named Alexander gets up and he makes a common sense speech. He tells the mob, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you've brought these men here who are neither blasphemers of our goddess, nor are they sacrilegious. So if therefore Demetrius and his craftsmen have a complaint, the courts are open. There are proconsuls. In other words, there's a legal process. Go about it if you want to do that. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it needs to be settled in the regular assembly, for we are in danger of being charged with a riot, because there's no cause to justify this commotion. And when Alexander said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Everyone goes home. They get a drink. They kind of settle down. And the end is kind of anticlimactic. But I want us to see something important that Alexander says. Because remember, he is not a believer. He doesn't have a dog in this fight other than he doesn't want to see a riot start on his watch. Okay? Or let it develop. He doesn't want to get in trouble for this. And he says to them, You've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. As far as Alexander is concerned... The Christians are not preoccupied with denouncing Artemis or defaming the temple. So I want us to see that, that their primary identity is not boycotting Artemis or the pantheon of Greek gods. You don't get the impression that these Christians were organizing some type of campaign, you know, hashtag down with Artemis, or that they, when they gathered on Sunday, like they spent all this attention, you know, denouncing the evils of the silversmith industry. no. Instead, they are for Jesus, and this has implications. But they aren't defacing the temple. They're not picketing around the statue or badgering people who want to buy silver shrines. Instead, they have encountered the living God and the free grace found in forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. And by extension, they spend their money differently. But I see quiet, dignified people whose affections have been redirected. And Alexander points out, we're, being, we're in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause. He's pointing out that Demetrius and the craftsmen 
if they feel like they have a legal battle, they can pursue that. But he can't see that they do. There is not cause. The Christian's belief is causing them to stop spending money in ways that don't fit with their new life and their new identity as disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what they're concerned with, following Jesus. Not necessarily with the evils of their day, per se. Only the evils of their day have, are affected indirectly by where their affections are going. Here's the question, though. What really caused the uproar? It's prophetic truth that led to action, and the action was noticed because it had dollars and cents impact. In our culture, there exists a narrative that says truth and money are inextricably linked. We say it like this. Follow the money. Whether that's a detective story, whether that's the way to solve a crime, whether that's the way to explain mysterious behavior, it's often the subtext in understanding someone's true motivation. Follow the money. Suddenly things become clear. If we're able to, the longer we're able to follow that trail, the more we know about what really happened. Follow the money is also a way to know what people love, what they truly care about. So let me ask you this. What would happen if people followed your money? What would they see that you or I loved and worshipped? If we parsed out everything that we make, instead of swiping on little cards... We actually parsed it out in dollar bills, one dollar at a time. Then we started to stack it towards the things that we cared about. What would people see that we loved and we worshipped? Now, when I bring up that question, I know that some of you probably internally are resisting that right now when I speak. You think maybe that because you're starting out in life, or because of something unique about your situation, or because your budget is dominated by necessities of life, that there can't really be anything distinctly Christian about the way you spend your money. You might even wish that there was, but you think that day needs to be later because of the urgent necessities of right now. I'd like to challenge you, regardless of your circumstances or age or season of life, that this actually is not a someday later issue. That if, you, if you're not sure if there's any way, that you do, any way that the way that you spend your money is distinctly Christian, that you respond to what I'm saying with prayer and actually ask the Spirit of God to lead you. But let me give you two distinct points of application from this text about the way that what our money should represent. Two distinct points. Number one, this text shows us that our money should demonstrate a hatred of evil. There are things, there are some things that the money of those who follow Christ should never go towards. And again, that might make some of you uncomfortable. So depending on how you grow up, that statement may remind you of religious boycotts of things like Disney or HBO or Starbucks or Jesus Christ Superstar or any number of things. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's probably for the best. Um, I'm not talking about organized boycotts. What I am saying is that for these Christians and for us, the worship of idols and the financial support of idols was untenable with their faith. 
They got rid of the paraphernalia that surrounded their old life, and they simply stopped spending their money on idolatry. That's not a boycott. That's a logical extension of love for Jesus. So let me ask it to you like this. Is there anything that you cannot participate in because you are a Christian? Is there anything that you cannot support because you are a Christian? Is there anything that you cannot afford under any circumstances at any income level because you are not a Christian, because you are a Christian? And I would submit there should be. Number two, if we followed your money, it should demonstrate a distinct love for the people of God. Love for the people of God. That is demonstrated, the love for the people of God and the relational intimacy of the book of Acts is start to finish. We see in Acts chapter 2, we see the people sharing their possessions together. In Acts chapter 4, it says that there was not a needy person among them. In Acts chapter 6, we see the collection that was begun to be taken up for the widows who needed to be provided for. Relational intimacy and its financial implications are threaded throughout this whole story. We even see just the closeness that that these Christians have for each other when you get the sense that these guys are holding Paul back in the assembly. They will not let him be harmed by this riotous mob. There should be love for the people of God in the way that we spend our money. Of course, the starting place for this is that we give generously to the best of our abilities to the church. The church is not an organization. It is the family of God and the household of God. And we all get a chance to play our part in seeing that family thrive. If we followed your money, would it show distinct love for the people of God? Of course, that can be expressed in tithes and offerings. There are so many other spontaneous ways, ways in the margin, sacrificial ways that I know that that speaking personally as part of this church for the past nine years, I have been blessed with more anecdotes and more ways that I can tell. That is one of the primary evidences is the activity of the Spirit of God in a church is the way that people spend their money for the good of the family of God and for the good of each other. There is something distinctly Christian or there ought to be about the way that we handle our money. There are economic implications that the gospel has on us. And what grabs the attention of people more than freedom from the love of money? In our cultural narrative of follow the money, there also exists this idea that, you know, ultimately we can all have our different perspectives on truth and not truth, but at the end of the day, money talks. What grabs the attention of of people more than freedom from the love of money. And what underlines the reality of our faith more than truly living free from the love of money. In all this, I don't say this to mandate your financial behavior, but rather to say, we follow Jesus who said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. We follow Jesus who not only lived like that, who died like that. It's more blessed to give than to receive. There's nothing more counterintuitive than that. And that frees us up to live financially counterintuitive lives. So let that challenge you today, that there are economic implications to the gospel. There are distinctly Christian ways that we can spend our money 
There are certainly plenty of people to talk to in this church if you want to get into the weeds of what that looks like. But for right now, I just want to ask you to pray with me as we weigh these words. So please pray with me. We'll ask the Spirit for help. Jesus, we thank you for these words of Scripture. We thank you that they are inspired by your Spirit. We want to be hearers who are not merely thought-provoked, but who move towards obedience and action. So would you provoke us by your Spirit? Would you convict where that's needed? Would you assure where that's needed? I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you would do that. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.